Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next, Sheila Hetty returns to Between the Covers to talk about her latest book, Motherhood. Somehow I ended up with multiple copies of Motherhood, several advanced reader copies and several retail copies, and I've been ruminating on how best to get these to listeners and supporters of the show. So this is the imperfect solution I've decided upon. If you have either been a supporter of the show for at least a year at any level, or you become a new supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers, again, at any level, and you want a copy of the book, I'll send a copy to the first people who reach out until I run out of copies. At Patreon, you'll see the other goodies available, as well as Sheila Hetty reading her piece, My Life is a Joke. And I'd also recommend, as a pairing with this conversation, listening to uh, Sheila on Rachel Zucker's podcast, Commonplace, a conversation between Sheila Hetty, Sarah Manguso, and Rachel Zucker about motherhood and writing that I think complements this conversation, as well as uh, when Sarah Manguso appeared on this program to talk about ongoingness. But before you do all that, let's get to the conversation at hand. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer Sheila Hetty. Hetty studied art history and philosophy at the University of Toronto and playwriting at the National Theatre School of Canada, and she's the author of seven books. These include How Should a Person Be, chosen by the New York Times and by James Wood of The New Yorker as one of the best books of the year, and which was also the book Sheila and I discussed during her first appearance on the show. She's also the co-author with Misha Gluberman of the book, The Chairs Are Where the People Go, described by The New Yorker as a triumph of conversational philosophy, and co-editor with Heidi Julevitz and Leanne Shapton of the best-selling book, Women in Clothes, an anthology that includes the voices of 639 women from around the world. Sheila Hetty is the former interviews editor of The Believer magazine, and she has interviewed everyone from Elena Ferrante and Carl Ova Knausgaard to Joan Didion, Agnes Farda, and Sophie Cowell. She's also the creator of Trampoline Hall, a popular monthly lecture series based in Toronto and New York, where people speak on subjects outside their area of expertise. 
Sheila Hetty's writing has appeared in The New Yorker, McSweeney's, Harper's, The London Review of Books, and The New York Times. Her play, All Our Happy Days Are Stupid, interwoven with songs written by Destroyer, had a sold-out run at The Kitchen in New York and Video Fag in Toronto. Sheila Hetty returns to Between the Covers today to talk about her latest book, Motherhood, already one of the most debated and discussed books of the spring. Rachel Cusk says of Motherhood, This inquiry into the modern woman's moral, social, and psychological relationship to procreation is an illumination, a provocation, and a response, finally, to the new norms of femininity formulated from the deepest reaches of female intellectual authority. It is unlike anything else I've read. Sheila Hetty has broken new ground, both in her maturity as an artist and in the possibilities of the female discourse itself. Elif Batuman adds, the book Sheila Hetty's Motherhood reminds me of the most is Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, except that the agonizing decision is whether to create a child and not whether to destroy one. But it's that good and that crazy-making. I've never seen anyone write about the relationship between childlessness, writing, and mother's sadnesses the way Sheila Hetty does. I know motherhood is going to mean a lot to many different people, fully as much so as if it was a human that Sheila gave birth to, though in a different and, in fact, incommensurate way. That's just one of the many paradoxes that are not shied away from in this courageous, necessary, visionary book. And Mark Graef says, With each of her novels, Sheila Hetty invents a new novel form. Motherhood is a riveting story of love and fate, a powerful inspiration to reflect, and a subtle depiction of the lives of contemporary women and men by an exceptional artist in the prime of her powers, Motherhood constitutes its own genre within the many-faceted novel of ideas. Hetty is like no one else. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Sheila Hetty. Thank you. So this is your second foray into autofiction. If we uh, think about how should a person be, it had a fictional or fictionalized Sheila Hetty, and, it was, and the character was named Sheila Hetty. Sheila. Or Sheila, yes. But in Motherhood, you, you also are drawing from real-life questions that you had. Uh, it's, but this time it's told from the first person perspective. Right. I would love to hear about the considerations. What draws you back to the autofiction form? And when I think of it sort of in the American context, or the first, maybe the most uh, mainstream example I can think of is Philip Roth, when people used to mistake uh, Alexander Portnoy's family for his own family. And instead of him uh, balking against that with the huge difference actually in reality between Portnoy's family in the book and his own family, he sort of invited the confusion, Mm -hmm. but it feels like there may be other motivations for you other than the blurring of, of, uh, biography and, and fiction. When I started writing this book, I thought it was going to be a book of interviews that I was doing with mostly women, but some men too, about, um, either their journey to motherhood or away from motherhood or or parenthood or their experience of raising children or their experience of deciding not to. And um, so the book started off as nonfiction, and it was going to have a lot of voices in it besides my own. And then I did Women in Clothes with um, Heidi Julevitz and Leanne Chapman, which you mentioned in your introduction, which is a book of basically um, a book that was made from interviews. So... When I came back to working on motherhood, I felt sort of depleted from that way of working. And I just started writing my own thoughts down. And 
I still wasn't sure what kind of book it was going to be. And then a few years into it, I was in Los Angeles and talking to a friend of mine, and I remember um, walking down the beach with her and just kind of her saying, either her saying, like, Sheila, you're writing a novel, or, like, me thinking, oh, actually, I think what I'm writing is a novel, and feeling this great liberation and this great sense of relief and a great sense of freedom and just relieved is like the main feeling in my body like okay I can do what I know how to do and I can um I can basically do anything I want um with this book and I don't have to worry about its resemblance to me or to other people you know and so the book slowly started to take form um with that new thought in my head and yeah, the, the material in the book comes from about seven years of writing, and some of that writing was very imaginative, and some of that writing was more diaristic, and some of that writing, um, as I'm sure we'll discuss, is like <laughs> in conversation with um, coins that I've tossed, and and some of the um, writing comes from conversations I've had with other people, and so it's just uh, a mix of... of of, all, of various different forms. And I, I've tried to give it a, a sort of uniform feeling, more or less, but, yeah. Well, one of the reasons why I brought up Philip Roth in this context was because you said something around gender in one interview around this question of autofiction, about how women are often um, asked about biography as writers, maybe over and above craft. Like, it's always foregrounded, this sense of biography, and that perhaps this use of autofiction as a way to push back against that tendency. I mean, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but it seems like the opposite impulse of Roth in the sense that he sort of invites this confusion of the reader. I'm not saying you're not inviting it, but it also feels like you're sort of pushing back against uh, the foregrounding of a certain aspect of a woman's life when they're a writer. Yeah, which which people foreground anyways. <laughs> so there's nothing you can I can really do about it. But um, it, to me, it's not about me and it's not about my, I'm not interested in people being interested in my life or not like that. I, 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 I think it's, it's, it's a work separate from myself. It's, you know, crafted and sculpted and edited and it's, it's, um, it's a book. It's not me. Nevertheless, when you were, when you were interviewing uh, Kanausgart, uh, which was a, a really wonderful interview and I hope people will seek it out on YouTube, um, and I think this is a good example because he is writing from his own life, and yet he also invents things that he doesn't remember, usually small details. But he also had this interesting rule for himself that was um, that if he remembered something and his fa if his brother or his mother could incontrovertibly say that it, it didn't happen the way that he remembers it, and he even believes them, he would still leave it in the way he remembered it. So I was wondering if you, in the ways that you're drawing from biography to create something separate from it, if you had any uh, sort of aesthetic or ethos like he did that was uh, a way to know what you were allowing yourself to do and what you weren't allowing yourself to do. Um, no, I didn't have any rules like that. Um, my my rules more have to do with my my ethical relationship to the people in my life, so I would never have published this book if I hadn't had the people close to me read it and 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 give me their notes on it and in places that um, they were concerned I always responded 
changing it. I, 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 I never felt like there was any compromise in doing that. And uh, I think a good work of art can, can, can't, should be an ethical, um, uh, be an ethical relationship to the people who, who appear in it in certain ways, either fictionally or non-fictionally. So, to me, that's that's really my ethos. It's like um, I don't want to hurt the people around me in the making of of a book. And um, if I can't if I can't make the change to their satisfaction, that's my failure as an artist. Yeah. So our 37-year-old protagonist in Motherhood is debating about whether to have a kid. She's obsessively ruminative over this question. And more often than not, she thinks she does not want a kid, but she doubts herself and is tormented sort of by the irrevocability of the decision. And what's really interesting about the character to me is she almost exclusively looks outside of herself for the answer, at least for much of the book. She consults the I Ching as well as a fortune teller and a tarot deck, and she creates these conversations with her friends, many of whom are already mothers, but not all, uh, in the hopes that maybe she can sort of locate herself by constellating the advice and the, the insights of all the people that she knows. But what was fascinating for me as an interviewer sort of preparing for this is uh, looking at all the other works that you wrote between How Should a Person Be and, and Motherhood, and also feeling sort of like there was this uh, similar inquiry that would appear sometimes explicitly and sometimes uh, surreptitiously in what you were writing. So there was uh, the child-centric writings of your interview with the children's performer Rafi. There was your uh, appreciation of Tove Johnson, the creator of the Moomins in, in the Paris Review, uh, your essay on the motherhood paintings uh, by Paula Moderson Becker and Mary Cassatt, and even your New Yorker story, uh, My Life is a Joke, sort of raises this question of, of, of children or not children and, and being witnessed in your life or not. Um, but even in some of your interviews that aren't explicitly uh, child-centric, so I was thinking um, your interviews with Joan Didion and Elena Ferrante in specific, much like your protagonist, uh, this, the, these questions enter the conversation. So I was wondering a little bit about how intentional you you were or how happenstance this was that we find um, this this thread between the two books. Did you see these other projects as partly or even mainly as as part of the sort of fertile research of of putting motherhood together? Um, less so the the essays, the Rafi essay and these other essays than than the times when during my interviews I asked these artists about having children. Um, I wrote this book because it really was an obsession of mine um, over the last six years, let's say. Um, it really was a question that I had in my head. I really did feel like I had to contend with it consciously. And um, in addition to writing the book, yeah, every time like I interviewed somebody who's an artist, especially a woman who I respected, who had children, I wanted to know like what what was that like for you? What was the relationship between writing and, uh, you know, writing and, um, and mothering for you? Was that difficult? Was it, was it okay? I, I mean, I was talking to everybody, everybody about that stuff at the time, not just the people that I was interviewing. Um, and so, yeah, and I, and I, I always wanted just to know how other people did it. And I, I think you're right in saying that, like, in the book, there's a lot of looking outside oneself, because, there's sort of this temptation to feel like the answer is in the world and 
when you are um, when you are trying to decide something that you are culturally told you may not be right about. So you think, so looking inside yourself is useful, but if the culture tells you that if you're a woman who doesn't want a child, you'll later see that you were wrong and you'll later regret it, then looking inside is not as useful as it, mm. as it should be. It doesn't feel like it's a very reliable place because you're constantly told that um, as a woman that um, you're not right about this. If you don't want a child, you're somehow wrong about not wanting it. And you're, if only you knew you would want it. And so, yeah, so yeah. she has to look everywhere. Well, I, I think it's really this brilliant move that you make to make the Yijing this character in the book, and particularly the way that you change the way the Yijing is used. So you've written about the Yijing in the way that it's used outside of this book. And you also have this sort of... Uh, little paragraph at the beginning of this book that explains how you're departing from from what would be a more proper use of the I Ching. Yeah, the only real connection between the I Ching and my book is that there's three coins that are used. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I don't use any of the I Ching text in the book. Right. And, and I, I just want to read, I want to read something that reflects, that, that you wrote, that reflects more of the nuance and complexity of the way the I Ching, or the way you see the I Ching being used. And it was in a piece called How to Be Good When You're Lost. And, and you say, I have never felt consulting the I Ching that it was wrong in the state it gave me, not because there is God or fate in divination. I believe the coin process to be an expression of randomness, but because it's probably true that if there are 64 states or basic ways things can be, then at the deepest level of truth, all of these states are probably occurring at once. So whether one pulls hexagram number four, youthful folly, or hexagram number nine, the taming of the small, it will be happening now, for the universe is more manifold, more complex, more paradoxical, and more everything that we limited creatures who move forward in time can ever fully appreciate or experience. We can intuit this manifold, but we still have to respond to the world in one way. And what's really great about what you do, I think, in this book is you make it sort of just one step more complicated than a than a coin toss. So we know the absurdity of the information that you're getting, and yet somehow I don't know what makes it so funny is not that not just that the narrator is responding to these answers seriously, but that I I find at least for myself I helplessly give these answers authority. Yeah, which makes me laugh at not just the narrator, but laugh at myself. And then in a strange way, I'm developing empathy for the narrator by seeing myself do what the narrator's doing. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. It's it, Even I feel that way when I was doing the coin tosses because, um, you know, I'd ask a question and then I'd throw the coins and it would say basically yes or no. And and I I know it's randomness, but... The, this voice still develops. This yes and no turns into a character, despite my knowledge that there's really no character there. It's almost like we can't help but project an intelligence or a, or something um, onto it, some kind of personality or some sort of um, um, yeah, some sort of attitude. And the attitude is so so trick, tricksterish and and sort of. Um, yeah, funny and kind of mean and and godlike, and it's so strange that to me, like I keep thinking, like it's so strange that our our my idea, anyways, of of what God is, turns out to be actually 
I could not write go- a God character better than randomness can. And it's it's such an interesting thing that randomness and then God, like the greatest meaning one could conceive of, have the same personality. That's really strange. Yeah. I was hoping you could just read a, a short section of it yeah. so that people can get a taste. So these dialogues between the narrator and, and the I Ching happen periodically throughout the books. Okay, so basically what's happening is three coins are being tossed, and if it's two or three heads, it's a yes, and if it's two or three tails, it's a no. And I have a book at the, uh, I have a note at the start of the book that just says that these coin tosses really happened. So I'll, I'll just make that point right now. I, I didn't, I didn't invent the nos and yeses. So when I say no and yes in this reading, that's the that's the coins. It is so hard to conceive of making art without an audience who will eventually see it. I know we make art because we're humans, and that's what humans do for the sake of God. But will God ever see it? No. Is that because art is God? No. Is it because art exists in the house of God, but God doesn't pay attention to what's in God's home? Yes. Is art at home in the world? Yes. Is art a living thing, while one is making it, that is, as living as anything else we call living? Yes. Is it as living when it is bound in a book or hung on a wall? Yes. Then can a woman who makes books be let off the hook by the universe for not making the living thing we call babies? Yes. Oh, good. I feel so guilty about it sometimes, thinking it's what I should do, because I always think that animals are happiest when they live out their instincts. Maybe not happiest, but feel most alive. Yet making art makes me feel alive, and taking care of others doesn't make me feel as alive. Maybe I have to think about myself less as a woman with this woman's special task and more as an individual with her own special task, not put woman before my individuality. Is that right? No. Is it that making babies is not a woman's special task? Yes. I should not be asking questions in the negative. Is it her special task? Yes. Yes, but the universe lets women who make art but don't make babies off the hook? Does the universe mind if women who don't make art choose not to make babies? Yes. Are these women punished? Yes. By not experiencing the mystery and joy? Yes. In any other way? Yes. By not passing on their genes? Yes. But I don't care about passing on my genes. Can't one pass on one's genes through art? Yes. Do men who don't procreate receive punishment from the universe? No. Do they receive punishment for neglecting other tasks one typically associates with maleness? No. Men escape all damnation and can do whatever they want? No. Perhaps their punishment comes not from the universe but from society? Yes. Does it take the form of ridicule? Yes. From women? No. From other men? Yes. And is their suffering as great as the suffering of these women at the hands of the universe? Yes. Well, I guess that seems fair. Yes. We've been listening to Sheila Hattie read from her latest book, Motherhood. So uh, another way you sort of subvert the the novel form other than doing uh, this autofiction enterprise is a way that I I found also really interesting, which was around uh, narrative arc. So you've talked about how you feel like the the typical narrative arc, rising tension, climax, and denouement uh, is 
is a, a masculine uh, mimicking of the, even the male sexual acts so sex and ejaculation for a man, uh, and that you were looking for a different story arc pattern for, for motherhood that was more mimicking of the menstrual cycle. And you explicitly have some of the chapters um, cycle through in, in, a, in a repetitive way the, the various uh, phases of the menstrual cycle. So could you talk a little bit about what the aesthetics and qualities of a menstrual cycle uh, narrative arc w- look like? Yeah, I mean, the idea of, of, of um, ordering it in that way in the middle of the book is to sort of give a sense of the shifting moods that accompany the menstrual cycle. So the, 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 the four chapters are, you know, ovulation, which is a time of great joy and optimism and a happiness, basically, um, which, is, which is followed by um, like the, the PMS. I just call it PMS in the book, though that's obviously not the name of, the, of it. Um, it's called the luteal phase, but uh, which is a time of, you know, negativity and, um, and feeling like things are not going to go well and unhappiness. And, and then that that's followed by, um, I call it in the book bleeding, you know, once period, which is always in the book. Um, there's like images of blood. And just as there is in life, when you go through that, there's the blood. So there's the body um, expresses itself in that way. And then uh, the next stage is called follicular, which is when the, um, your period is over and then the cycle starts again with the lining of the uterus building up, which I took metaphorically to mean sort of like the the generating of new ideas, the starting over again. And I just wanted to, um, to put down on the page, like in a narrative way, this feeling of cycling every month endlessly through these emotions and the hope followed by the despair, basically followed by hope and optimism followed by you know, pessimism and how exhausting that is. And, you know, the, the question of the book of like, whether or not I should have a child, um, uh, is like being asked by the narrator in, in these moods. So in the, in the ovulating mood, the, the answers are, are much different than in the like mood right before one's period where things look very dark and bleak. And part of what I wanted to, um, express was partly the difficulty of coming to an answer about what you should do in this area of your life has to do with these, the shifting perception of your life that cycles endlessly like this. And, and it's, it's hard to know which of these moods to trust, you know? So I wanted that, that sort of like eternal return of the same Nietzsche kind of like thing that just just that to be the narrative as opposed to now here we come to this great revelation and then everything is fine. It's not like that as a woman. You you maybe come to a great, great peak, you know, of emotion, but then you're back down again um, in a much darker place. And I don't think that I'd ever seen a book that that mapped that and that's kind of my experience of the world. Like that's how that's how it feels. Especially, um, I don't think I noticed that before I started tracking my periods. But like in my thirties, I started tracking it, and I noticed that my that 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 is the narrative that I'm living in some way. Yeah, and I feel like I want to talk later a little bit about some of the critical reception of this book and your last book. But it did make me wonder about this idea of uh, that you have about the I Ching, too, that all 64 hexagrams are actually there at the same time. So mm-hmm. while you have um, 
certain things that come forward at different times of the month and the, the arguments that are being made or the thoughts that are being had in a particular part of the book are colored by, let's say, a certain hexagram or a certain mood. Uh, that doesn't mean the other ones aren't also true. Right. And you'll often even in the book quickly uh, undermine, contradict, or make more complicated something that you say. But what I keep seeing in a lot of the reviews, they seem like they're speaking more about the reviewer, the way they're self-selecting what to use and what to ignore. It's whatever's triggering the person who's reading the book, uh, either uh, joyously or, or irritated uh, response. Um doesn't feel like it's capturing necessarily the complexity or even the vantage point of the of the time of the month that this specific thing is being spoken. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been reading too many of the reviews. I've only read a, f a few of them, but the few that I've read do feel like all of them more or less start with the woman situating herself in her life in relation to this question, and and then the review proceeds to use the book um, as a way of relating to her own decision or her, her place in her life, which, which is, is not really what you want from a review, but that is what I wanted from, for the, for the reader to do. So I can't really complain because I did want this book to be, um, to throw the reader back on her, usually her, but doesn't have to be her, but on their own, on their own experience of this question. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you've said that you, you wanted was not to increase the divide between mothers and, and non-mothers. And I think this bipolar, recursive, menstrual-infused narrative structure is, is part of what allows that to happen, the possibility of that it not being divisive, because we find the narrator falling on both sides of the divide over and over again in, in yeah. repetition. But I was, I was also just curious what other considerations in writing the book uh, were you um, thinking of in order to not um, exacerbate the divide that exists culturally between uh, women who either choose to not have children or don't have children versus mothers? Um, well, I had a lot of women who are friends of mine who are writers who are uh, mothers read the book, and I, their fe feedback was important to me. You know, if there were things in the book that um, that were that seemed really wrong to them about the experience of being a mother or, or other things. But, and, and, the, and it, it turned out that there was really that I, all the, the things that I feared, um, that would be problems for my mother friends weren't problems. So, so I, I feel, I felt really good about that and sort of surprised, but I mean, I guess the things that I, I wasn't really, it's not like I consciously formally set out to do things that wouldn't increase the divide. It's just that I knew in my heart that I didn't want to. And, um, and I just hoped that it wouldn't happen because, um, I don't see any, I mean, no one sees any good in it. We all, no one sees any good in it. It happens anyways. So I don't know. I think just try, just by trying to be sensitive and by trying to, it's not a polemic. The book is not like, people shouldn't have children or people should have children. So I think that even just by representing like in a very, very like fine and nuanced way, like you were saying, the actual, um, the actual gymnastics that one goes through and kind of answering this question, like, of, of course, at times you will see the horror of having children and at times you will see the beauty of having children. And I, I think any woman who's honest with herself or any parent who's honest with themselves has experienced both thoughts. Mm-hmm. Well, one reviewer sort of aptly characterized the book as deconstructing the question of why 
a woman's decision to have children feels so tied to her perceived value as a human being. And on the one hand, it feels like our narrator from the get-go sort of knows that she doesn't want to have kids, but maybe perhaps because of this fear of being diminished by society or pressured by society, uh, and she truly examines both sides with utmost seriousness. And there's a question you ask Ferrante that I want to read, um, because I feel like it illustrates really well one side of this bipolar uh, mood-shifting nature of, of the narrator. And then I was hoping you would, you would read a, a section that would show the other side. So you say to Ferrante, do you ever regret not taking the path of not having children? I worry, for I think I will probably not have children, that maybe I won't be able to be a good enough writer if I don't have this experience. Obviously, you can't have children for this reason, and Virginia Woolf and many other great writers were childless, yet I still have this fear. On the other hand, I want all my time to read and, and write. Do you think it's possible for a woman to experience her deepest humanity if she is not a mother? If not, isn't that a problem for someone interested in knowing humanity? Another version of this question might be, do you think life naturally gives to everyone who writes enough experiences to write from? if writing is fed by having experienced life. And, and I think when I think of this, this question you asked, uh, Elena Ferrante, it feels like you, your narrator is very credible and valuable because she's willing to deeply imagine what she might lose. Like she's taking this question really seriously and the possibility that maybe this is a terrible, terrible decision not to. So it's, I, I don't think we can say that the narrator isn't is doing this sort of as a as a fun exercise. She's she's um, at moments deeply um, tormented, but where I where I think motherhood becomes remarkable and and even vitally important is where it spends more of its time, which is sort of pushing back against the society's pressures um, and and sort of interrogating this idea of of the perceived value of a woman without a child and opening up space for a woman to sort of ask the question of what they really, really want, um, regardless of what that is. So I was hoping you'd read a little section sort of as the other part of the ambivalent investigation. When I was younger, thinking about whether I wanted children, I always came back to this formula. If no one had told me anything about the world, I would have invented boyfriends. I would have invented sex, friendships, art, I would not have invented child-rearing. I would have had to invent all those other things to fulfill real longings in me. But if no one had ever told me that a person could create a person and raise them into a citizen, it wouldn't have occurred to me as something to do. In fact, it would have sounded like a task to very much avoid. Not that it really matters the question of what my authentic or original desire might be. I know a person can enjoy things they never thought they would and regret terribly things they wanted very much or can come to want things they didn't want before. What I need is so small to eradicate any sentimentality from my feelings and look at what is. Today, I define sentimental to myself as a feeling about the idea of a feeling. And it seemed to me that my inclinations towards motherhood had a lot to do with the idea of a feeling about motherhood. It's like the story my religious cousin told me when we were at her home for Shabbat dinner, of the girl who made chicken the way her mother did, which was the way her mother did, always tying the chicken legs together before putting it in the pot. When the girl asked her mother why she tied the legs together, her mother said, that's the way my mother did it. 
When the girl asked her grandmother why she did it that way, her grandmother said, that's how my mother did it. When she asked her great-grandmother why it was important to tie the chicken legs together, the woman replied, that's the only way it would fit in my pot. I think that is how childbearing feels to me, a once necessary, now sentimental gesture. I've been listening to Sheila Hetty read from Motherhood. Well, before we sort of do a deep dive into some of the philosophical questions that you raise, I wanted to ask you a question about time and its role in this book. We have the menstrual cycle, which serves as a sort of clock also in the book. But early on, you introduced this idea of the soul of time, and you contemplate calling the book the soul of time. And some reviewers have even suggested the book is more a contemplation of time than of, of motherhood. So I was, I was just wanting to hear a little bit about time and motherhood and, and what role you see it playing. In some ways, like, I think like when you ask yourself a question over and over and over again and you can't come to an answer, there's something wrong with the question and there's something wrong with the frame of the question. And so if one thing that um, I think I came to in writing this book was I had been framing the question as like, you know, do I want a child or does this narrator want a child as 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 you know framing motherhood in the in the future tense maybe like about um, parenting somebody who doesn't yet exist and and yet what sort of seems to happen in the book is that motherhood inverts and becomes this relationship to one's mother and one's grandmother and like line- the lineage of women before one and um, motherhood in relationship to the past and to sort of healing the wounds of the past through one's present life and actions as opposed to creating a person and then, you know, them inheriting whatever troubles you, you have um, uh, and, and somehow you trying to solve your, your, the problem, your existential problems by making another person live. Um, and, yeah, and so I, I kind of feel like the idea of the soul of time is is like in the book there's the grandmother who who survives Auschwitz and there's obviously a great um, pain and sorrow and um, trauma to that um, and it's never really solved it, it's not solved in her life it's not solved in in in, in the the next generation's life and then here this book is um, and the attempt in the, this book to solve that sorrow um, and I think in some ways the perhaps successful attempt to solve it is an indication of what I mean by the soul of time, that the soul doesn't necessarily solve its problems in its own lifetime. If we can say if there is such a thing as a soul, I'm not making that argument, but to use that even poetically, um, that somehow time has its own logic and its own speed and 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 problems don't solve themselves necessarily in your own lifetime or even your problems don't even necessarily solve themselves while while you're alive um the grandmother in this book is has long passed away and yet the idea that time could 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 draw her problems into the present in after her life and and somehow wrap them up i think that's like a demonstration of what i mean by the soul of time so yeah i think the soul of time is a different t- is it could have been the title of the book but um, but there, it's like a less uh, noun e kind of title you can't really grasp it you can't hold on to it yeah I'm glad you chose motherhood yeah that was the right title all along 
one of the things that I found it really interesting too was uh, was listening to you on Rachel Zucker's podcast, Commonplace, which I I think would be a great pairing. If people sh- after listening to this, it would be really interesting to then listen to Sarah Manguso, Rachel Z- Zucker, and and Sheila uh, talk about art and motherhood. And your book was in in uh, progress still at that point, but I remember not knowing that much about. Um, how much you knew each other. I remember sort of having a misplaced fear that you were going to be ganged up on because I was thinking, oh, Sarah Manguso has the, had this unequivocally transformative experience of, as a mother and wrote about it. And Rachel Zucker has defined her, her, much of her career in poetry around this idea of motherhood and, and also having been a doula and, and, the, 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 um, and giving birth and the transformation of birth. But all of the um, fault lines that happen in the show are not predictable. It's not a mother, non-mother breakdown. But we also learn both how you how you invited both into the process of reading the book in progress, and also uh, about how you played a role in in Sarah Mangusa's ongoingness and the pact that you both had about having kids at one point. But the thing that really jumped out to me was. In, with admiration was the way Rachel Zucker read your book. And she expresses that it caused her a lot of pain, but she, she makes this interesting assertion that she feels like you've written a book that captures the experience of motherhood better than a mother could, which seems to flip the narrative. Cause when we think about it, it's always uh, the mother who says, you can't really understand what it's like non mother because you, you haven't done it yet. And you can only understand it by doing it. And yet Rachel has sort of expresses that you were able to imagine across the divide somehow in a way that a mother couldn't. And I, I just wanted to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I was really flattered and relieved when she said that. And I don't know if it's true or not, but I think if you're a mother and you want to be a good mother there's certain thoughts that you just, you don't go there. You don't want to let yourself go there because it can compromise your feelings towards your role and your child and the life you've chosen. And it's it's functional not to go there. It'd be dysfunctional to go there. And I think for myself, there's nothing at stake in, um, in imagining myself into that place because I don't then have to go and tend to a child. Um, I think she said that it exposed her to herself, like it exposed some of her motivations and some of, in a way that was unflattering to herself, but that was ultimately true. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's right, actually. Yeah. Yeah. She mentioned some feeling revealed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which I had imagined couldn't be, there couldn't be a better compliment from a reader. Yeah, exactly. Especially like she's a mother of of three three boys and um, she was one of the, first people I talk to about my book, you know, and, and so, she wants to be a mother to be clear. Like she's and not she likes being a mother. Yeah. So it's much. not like she's being revealed and then going, Oh my God, I made the wrong choice. No. That's not the, the point at all. No, exactly. Well, there's, there's, I want to read a couple short quotes by you because I feel like this idea of imagining across the divide and how it's typically seen as one direction and not the other. I feel like that's some of where the philosophical work that's happening in motherhood that I find really interesting and in, about the um, maybe the flaws of that model. Um, so here's here's one of them. 
Some people try to imagine what it's like not to have children, and they imagine themselves without children instead of picturing a person they might never be. They project their own potential sadness over not having this experience on those who don't want it at all. A person who can't understand why someone doesn't want children only has to locate their feelings for children and imagine that same desire directed somewhere else to a life that is just as filled with hope, purpose, futurity, and care. And elsewhere you say, I experience biology's forgetting about me as an immense relief, as a sort of bliss. If you do not have a child at a certain age, you become your own child. You start life all over again, this time with yourself. And what will I do with all this time? But time is not what you do something with. Time does something with you. And both of those sort of blew my mind because I don't think I've ever seen those things articulated. And it reminded me of, of something you said in, a, in an interview about a friend of yours who read the book. And they said that if men could have babies, there would be hundreds of books like this going back to Plato, that whether or not to create life would be the central question of philosophy, which made me wonder, well, that's, it made me wonder why these, this posing of the problem has ne I haven't come across in all of the writings about motherhood. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, something, I thought about that because I, I said that quote in the, um, I think it was in the Paris Review, and and I, I reread that interview, and then I was like lying in bed that night, and I was thinking, no, actually, my friend is wrong because it it's not necessarily, because we haven't had proper birth control until very recently in human history, so it's not the man-woman thing, it's the being able to control it thing that that allows a book like this to be written. It's the fact that for the first time, basically, like, you know, in human history, more or less, you know, um, we can we have to make a choice about it. And it's such a strange thing to have to make the choice because, you know, it's almost like, uh, I was thinking about this analogy the other day, it's almost like if at, let's say at age 50, you were given this choice now, suddenly, let's say, you know, Silicon Valley, whatever, they, they've, they've figured out immortality. And you're given this choice of like, do you want to live forever? Or do you want to actually one day die, like within, you know, let's say 90 years? The, and if you do, you've got to take the pill now. And, and you just have like, you sort of have like 10 years to decide, let's say the same way, like, you know, from 30 to 40, or 20 to 30, as a woman, you have just like a certain amount of time to decide. And, and you have no reports of of anybody living and dying. You don't know what dying is. The same way that a woman who doesn't have children doesn't know what motherhood is. There's because a lot of women talk about a death of the self that didn't have children, and there's a blooming into a new kind of self, which is the mother self. Like, how would you decide whether to live immortally forever, ever, ever, or to die? And it's that kind of choice. It's it's a choice of that magnitude whether to create life or not. And there's there's no right answer to either of those. Both of them are kind of terrible. It's terrible to live forever and it's terrible to die. And which one is more terrible for you, <laughs> you know? And you can't experience either of them and you have to choose without any knowledge. And I kind of feel like that's what this problem is of, of do you want to live forever without a child or do you want to create this life? It's like, well, you, d you have no real information and the information you get from other people you can't trust because people don't really tell the truth about their lives. Even your cl one's closest friends kind of don't really tell the truth about th their own lives. Well, and but but the fact that you're sort of and you're not them, <laughs> right? Even if they do tell the truth, yes. And and yet, 
kind of what makes this shine and makes this feel unique is the assertion of a certain wholeness or integrity once you have made that choice. So you choose not to have a child that isn't like uh, a life with an arc that's been lopped off. Like you, you talk about, uh, you don't mention like Gloria Steinem and Oprah f- as examples, but you, uh, but the idea that if you're not going to have a kid, you better live this incredibly remarkable life. Like the pressure's on to justify you not having a child. So no one's going around going, well, Oprah should have had a baby, but Oprah has an empire. Yeah. So, yeah. What are you going to have instead? Okay. If you're not going to have a child, what are you going to do instead to justify that? Yeah. You know, what great thing are you going to achieve? And that's, yeah, that's its own kind of crazy pressure. Like, why can't you just not have a child and have a normal life? And like you say, have that arc be complete. Um, have that wholeness exist rather than this lack of a child forever. Well, other than... As you, part of your identity. Yeah, and, and you point to the pill, which is really interesting, as a sort of a pushback against your friend's idea around uh, if men could have babies. But um, what about this question of language? Because you, you meditate on this in the book a lot about how how to articulate a choice not to do something and how it's hard to put the choice of not doing into language that feels uh, whole and positive, essentially. Yeah. Is that part, do you think, of the, the, the absence of this? Like, I feel like what you're part of what this book is doing, it's not choosing a side, but it's there's one side that hasn't been articulated. Right. And so that side is you're attempting to articulate uh, sort of a positive presence of a not doing. Right. Essentially. I mean, yeah, especially because there's so much in culture. I mean, all of culture is the positive pre- uh, presentation of, of mothering. I mean, now there's there's a lot of, um, you know, gritty, you know, depictions of motherhood. But that that comes in the wake of, of you know, motherhood is the world's greatest calling for a woman. And, and you know, yeah, I mean, there's no word for not having a child. There's no word for being a person without a child, without saying a person without, you know, there's no... There's no af- affirmative way of saying this. It's always um, a statement of 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 uh, loss or um, yeah or of not having or of um, some kind of paucity and and that is a problem of language and it's not a problem of language that that I've seen anyone solve. Yeah. Well, well, despite Rachel Zucker saying that motherhood is this great depiction of motherhood, you've also been receiving some reviews that have called the book maddening and even have called you childish. Uh, the writer Lainey Zumas on Twitter was cataloging yesterday um, the ways your narrator is described in, in the New Yorker review as petulant, bratty, self-indulgent, throwing a sort of tantrum, acting like a baby and stamping her foot. And Zumas concludes that wittingly or not, the review is propagating the tired cliche that childless women never grow. Right. So th- this idea that there's some thing you're refusing that's that's normal and um, should be expected. And, and, and you wrote an essay that engaged the critics that called how should a person be similarly narcissistic, saying people who look at themselves in order to better look at the world, that is not narcissism. It is and has always been what people who make art do and must do. You cannot go it blind. You cannot do it by looking at a toaster. And I, I was wondering about this accusation um, of narcissism and what, how much you feel like it's gendered. Because when I think of, say, again, Philip Roth or Knausgaard, I think narcissism might come up in the ways that they're evaluated, but I think it's sort of like a footnote on 
all of the praise that they get. So it's not that their enterprises, which are very much um, navel-gazing in some respect, maybe that word would come up, but it wouldn't be the the headline. Yeah. Whereas it feels like it's the headline w- with some of these reviews, and, and, and notably um, mostly from women who are, who are the critics. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's gendered. I do think it's um, unfair, and there's just like, literally nothing I can do about it and um to spend my time being upset about it is a waste of my time um the the review in the New Yorker that Lenny's talking about I didn't see that tweet but I'm happy to hear about it um which which called me not even the narrator but me um childish and bratty and stomping my foot is just like that's literally not my book at all um the book is very measured and very um philosophical and and very intellectually rigorous and very um emotionally fair and and i just i think that's a projection onto the the book by the reviewer and that's okay like you can have an emotional response to the book and 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 feel whatever you way whatever way you want about it but i just don't think it's a, a true depiction of the book well it comes back to that idea of the aging in the sense that I think that a reviewer could take a paragraph away from another paragraph that follows it. Like some of the yeah. excerpts, like the one that we had you read as a, a contrast to the Elena Ferrante question, where it seems like you're really sure. If you would have kept reading down the page, you become less sure and right. sort of undercut the the confidence even. Yeah. So I think it's, it's hard. To, I think this is a book that's hard to excerpt right. in that regard. But you also bring up this question, which I think is apropos to the critique is uh, why a woman without kids is so threatening to a woman with kids. Yeah. Is, is there, um, I, I wondered if you had thoughts about that. I know your narrator does. Is it, it, it's almost as if living a specific way is, is by its very nature critiquing the other path. I mean, in my experience of hearing people respond to this book, not only since it's been published, but in drafts before it was published, Women who have children who are happy with having their children do not have a negative response to the book. I feel like it's the women that have had a negative response to the book who are mothers, because there are women who have a negative response who aren't mothers, but the ones who are mothers, either I think don't really want to be mothers and you know they secretly resent having to be a mother or they resent the fact that I'm presenting a thinking through of the problem and that wasn't, they didn't give themselves permission to think through it. So there's just a resentment of seeing a woman ask herself, do I want to do this? If, 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 the, if the reader has not given herself that or has not felt like she ha- can take that space, then I can understand the, the anger towards the book because because it's horrible not to have given yourself that space or to feel like you can take that sort of space. And now you have the child. And maybe if you had given yourself that space, you wouldn't have had a child or have had a child in that way or at that time. So I think it's legitimate for people to feel angry. But I don't think feeling angry at the at the book is the right direction, you know? Yeah. Well, you bring up the possibility of, of regret about becoming a mother which to me, it seems to me like that's the ultimate taboo, whether one even speaks it to themselves um, or particularly out loud. Uh, there's no room. There seems to be growing room 
to for what you're doing, which is also a taboo, but less so than a mother who's already a mother yeah. saying, if I could do it over, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Uh, and can you, I was wondering if you could talk about that, that phenomenon within the context of writing motherhood. Cause I know you've mentioned the Israeli uh, sociologist, Orna Danath. The book is called Regretting Motherhood. Thank yeah, you. And she, she writes, she interviews women who, who are mothers who regret it. It's not that they're ambivalent. They regret having done that. They and wish and, they and you also were looking at comment sections with, or comment mm-hmm. sections within articles, uh, about motherhood and regretting motherhood? Could you... Yeah, I mean, just like women writing articles on the internet or having been interviewed, women who regret being mothers, they're interviewed and there's an article written about them and in the comments section, there's such vitriol. I mean, nobody in the world gets more abuse than the woman who doesn't want to be a mother who is a mother. Um, and um, on top of the horrors of having to, 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 to be a mother for the rest of your life when it really wasn't suitable for you to make that, to make that kind of life for yourself, then to also not be able to talk about it with anybody. And then if you talk about it with people to be abused, I mean, I just, it's just a horrible, it's a horrible situation. And, um, yeah, it'd be nice to live in a world in which, in which we could accept that a person is capable of regretting any choice that they make in their life. And, 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 and you can say, I wish I hadn't brought this person into the world, but now that this person is here, I have to do my duty by her or him, and and I love him or her, but it's not the right life for me. And if women aren't free to say that, then then every other woman just thinks, well, because I'm a woman, I'm going to like motherhood, because every woman likes motherhood, because who's ever heard of a mother saying they don't like motherhood? I mean, I think it's a public service for a woman, for a woman to say, I love my children, but I wish I hadn't become a mother, because then you prevent other women from being in that same situation. Right. Well, I wonder if like, you know, some of the pressure uh, for a woman to become a mother certainly is because of the positive feelings that some individual has for becoming a mother themselves. But some of it might be the opposite. Somebody who can't admit that they've had uh, made a choice that they would not do again, but want to feel the community of other people doing that choice. Yeah, sure. I I mean, maybe that that helps. Maybe that helps helps temper how bad it how bad it feels to do the daily drudgery, you know. I don't know. It's very complicated. And 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 I, literally the only women who've ever so, told me directly that they don't, they wish they weren't mothers are not women on this continent. North American women just don't say that. Yeah. They have other ways of say of expressing their dissatisfaction, but they won't go that far. You know, women I've spoken to in Italy, they'll say that. They'll say, I regret being a mother. But here it's still a great taboo. Hmm. Well, I, I want to return to the question of narcissism and, and gender for a minute, because you, you bring this up with Elena Ferrante in this really interesting way. And she has a similar answer to you in that she sees reflecting on herself with attention and care as as the only means to reflect upon the world. So there, her answer sort of reiterates that. But she also goes further by claiming narcissism is a good thing, not not a sin. And in thinking about the characters in her Neapolitan uh, quartet, Lila and Elena, um, you ask an interesting question that points to the solidarity or lack thereof among women. You ask why so many female writers, and you you in, include Ferrante in this, why they diminish the intellectual female figures that they create, why these characters pale in comparison to their less educated counterparts. And you ask, do we still not truly value female literary work, women who work with their minds, is it a kind of self-loathing? Why do we often portray intellectual women as having lost more than they have gained? 
And I was just hoping maybe you could you could talk a little bit more about that question and and that engagement. I don't really know what to say. It just it it's not what culture wants from women. It's not what culture. If if a, if if there's a if there's an intellectual woman, it's just like who cares, you know? It it's not a it's not a heroic thing. It's um, it it's it's going against. It makes people uncomfortable. It's it's not. It, it I can't even like think my way through it because because I don't want to. If I do, when I do think my way through it, I feel a lot of despair because I feel like, oh, maybe there's just something essential that will never change about this. Maybe there's just something like deeply biological that will always um that will always dominate whatever cultural hope we have for for um for like equality um and and i and then i just i i kind of turn away because um because i don't want to think that's true and and yet it's impossible to ignore i mean i talk to female writer friends of mine who who are who are who are great intellect and they'll so much more readily praise um, a, a male writer than a female writer a hundred times to one um, and and with language that is is so much um, uh, more laudatory than they will to a woman I mean I we just we just do it and and we can't seem to help ourselves and it's it's depressing well I was really impressed with how serious Ferrante took the question yeah. you implicated her in it in in bringing up her two char- main characters um, not specifically her but as part of this question and it seemed to me like she not only took your question seriously but agreed with it in a form of self-examination yeah and when she was talking a lot about the surveil the importance for women to surveil themselves because they're so used to being surveilled by their husbands and yeah. society and their parents and and it almost felt like you were prompting another uh, vantage point of surveillance for her. Right. In, in a form, like, I don't think she would argue that it's biological. I think she feels like this is a frontier that she was wanting to also cross, which was kind of amazing. You're interviewing Elena Ferrante. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's any any woman who looks at herself sees that. Every, every woman who looks at herself sees her, her own. Um, misogyny. I mean, you can't, you can't look at it. it, It's a poison we all contain within ourselves. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pivot a little bit. Okay. So um, one could argue that motherhood is more about time than about having a child. But one could also argue that the book is more about mothers than it is about having a child. And at one point, the narrator asks in response to this presumption that every woman will eventually want to have a child. For how long am I expected to live as though there's a second me hiding somewhere else? When will it finally feel safe to prioritize the me that I know? And it is when the narrator engages with her relationship with her own mother and her matrilineal line that the the book moves from this sense of abstract and from this outward-looking inquiry, and it feels like it it it, it becomes embodied and and rooted and connected. And we feel connected to the desires that we get hinted at at the beginning of the book of the narrator. And and in fact, at one point in the book, she concludes desire can never 
come from deliberation, but comes from somewhere deeper. And in this case, when she turns to face her mother, it feels like the book is going really deep. Um, in Motherhood, the narrator's mother is, is not turned toward her daughter, but focused on her work. And the father is more the mother figure. And the mother is even exasperated with the daughter's play acting, saying, stop acting, live your life, be yourself. And I was wondering how much of this resonates with your own family experience. And, and if it does have a strong resonance with it, did you find it difficult to write into this um, with, a, with, a live, with living parent? Um, yeah, it's very close to my own life. Um, my mother, um, always worked, um, she's a pathologist. Um, she always worked very hard and was definitely much more focused on her work than on her mothering, let's say. And my father, who also worked, was just, was like, yeah, the, the mother figure in the family and very much more nurturing kind of, um, personality. And, um... I guess, I guess I didn't find it that hard to write about because I I don't think I go into it except to sort of outline outline that. I mean I, and and the reason I chose to outline that was because and there was a number of reasons, but one is just it it's so easy for me to create a kind of disembodied thinking voice. But I I did want to put this character, this narrator, into a into a familial context because we all do come from different places and and though the places we come from aren't determining their their you know they do they do tell us something and 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 you know we can't help but look at our own histories and and wonder how much they had to do with our our our, our present choices and so um in the case of this book it's like if the mother if the mother is a, a worker rather than a a nurturer then what is mothering? Maybe mothering is working. Maybe mothering isn't nurturing. Maybe mothering is working really hard with your books in your bed, you know, at your desk with your pens. The, and I kind of wanted to show that. And I mean, we're, we're kind of like little ducks, you know, we just do what we see. And, and who's to say that mothering means taking care of children if your own mother didn't do that? Right. Well, I love how you, you don't see something wrong in it, but you see something wrong in the word mother instead. And it also, I, I don't know if this is a stretch, but I sort of connected this to some interview where you're talking about how you gravitated towards the gay canon growing up and um, 20th century gay, gay male writers particularly, and that something about them living without a blueprint was what was attractive to you. And I, I kind of wonder if that's also what's attractive to you about your own mother. Yeah, I think that those are heroes for me, like people that live without a blueprint and find their way. And I think that there's something, there's something beautiful about a person who has to ask all, all their questions that they can't take anything for granted. Um, I was just emailing this morning with the writer Taolin, who is a friend of mine, and um, we're sort of like interviewing each other about our books. And he, uh, you know, one of the questions I asked him was like, why? why do you think you're, you know, why are you such a good writer? I mean, I think he's such a good writer. And he wrote me back and he's like, well, I don't think, th I don't think about writing as good or bad. And I was thinking, but that's, that's why you're a good writer is because you, you don't take anything for granted. Like everyone else takes for granted that there's good writing and there's bad writing. And you, you, you've sort of, you come 
at it from even be, before that question and just says, well, why is there such a thing as good writing and bad writing? There's just inclinations and different people need different things. And so these are the kind of people in life that I, that I find most admirable because my basic feeling um, is that is that culture is just lies. You know, I don't I don't trust any anything that we're given, and so um, a person who can really live that way um, is is very beautiful to me. Mm. You know, and writing that comes out of out of being unable either you're unable to live um, with other people's answers because you are you know historically oppressed or by your own personality you're unable to follow somehow um, I don't know that that's the kind of writing that I'm interested in well I'm hoping you'll read two more sections one really short and one a little longer and then I want to ask you some questions a little bit more about the narrator facing her mother and her mother's mother okay what is wrong with living your life for a mother instead of a son or a daughter. There can be nothing wrong in it. If my desire is to write and for the writing to defend and for the defense to really live, not just for one day, but a thousand days or 10,000 days, that is no less viable a human aspiration than having a child with your mind set on eternity. Art is eternity backwards. Art is written for one's ancestors, even if those ancestors are elected like our literary mothers and fathers are. We write for them. Children are eternity forwards. My sense of eternity is backwards through time. The farther back in time I can go, the deeper into eternity I feel I can pierce. Low tear count today, although the feeling of tears was in me yesterday. Still, there is a pressure, stretchedness, and dryness all around my eyes. Someone cursed me and my mother and my mother's mother before me. The person who cursed us is now dead. It's a curse that turns me towards fixing my mother's sorrow, just as she was turned towards fixing her mother's. My mother lived to fix the problem of her mother's life, given how Magda was cursed. I have taken on the curse as my own. We do not pursue happiness in marriage. We do not look for happiness with children. We think mainly of our work to solve the problem of our mother's tears. My grandmother would not have wanted her daughter to be sad, and she would not have wanted her sadness to carry on through me. No one who has been through what she went through would have wanted her family to carry this sadness on. I know only one other story about my grandmother's life in the camps. The women in Magda's barracks were told by a guard that the Germans were looking for female prisoners to help in the camp kitchen. They were told that anybody interested in volunteering should step forward. Magda stepped forward. Everyone stepped forward, including a woman who Magda's future husband had dated prior to the war. A German soldier yelled at my grandmother, Not you. He roughly hit her and she fell back from the group. The woman my grandfather had dated was chosen. Magda never saw her again. Later she learned that none of the women who stepped forward to volunteer were taken to a kitchen. They were all taken to the German army, raped by the soldiers, and then shot to death. To have grown up knowing this story, I think, gave me a strange feeling of the naturalness of family lines ending, as if our family line was supposed to end there, but it managed to slip by, but just barely, the way someone who has been shot might stumble forward a few more steps before collapsing dead. That is how my life has always felt to me, like those last few bloodied and hobbled steps after the bullet has pierced the body. When I think about everything that could be or couldn't be, I think I don't want our flesh, my mother's flesh, my grandmother's flesh, 
to just be divided and replicated. I want their lives to be counted. I want to make a child that will not die, a body that will speak and keep on speaking, which can't be shot or burned up. You can't burn up every copy of a single book. A book is more powerful than any murderer, than any crime. Then to make a strong creature, stronger than any of us, to make a creature that lives inside many bodies, not just one body that is so vulnerable. A book lives in every person who reads it. You can't just snuff it out. My grandmother got away from the camps. She got away so she could live. I want my grandmother to live in everybody, not just in one body from between my legs. I do not feel I have the luxury to have a child. I do not have the time. My mother worked hard to justify her mother's life. She worked for her mother to give meaning to her mother's life. She was turned towards her mother, not turned towards me. And I am turned towards my mother too, and not towards any son or daughter. We turn our love backwards to make sense of life, to make beauty and significance of our mother's life. Maybe motherhood means honoring one's mother. Many people do that by becoming mothers. They do it by having children. They do it by imitating what their mother has done. By imitating and honoring what their mother has done, this makes them a mother. I am also imitating what my mother has done. I am also honoring my mother, no less than the person whose mother feels honored by an infant grandchild. I am honoring my mother no less. I do as my mother did, and for the same reasons. We work to give our mother's life meaning. What's the difference between being a good mother and being a good daughter? Practically a lot, but symbolically nothing at all. I've been listening to Sheila Hattie read from Motherhood. This reminds me a little bit of, of the last conversation I had on the show with Azarine Vanderfleet Alumi uh, about her book, Call Me Zebra, because we spent a lot of time talking about facing backward or putting the past in front of oneself. And um, in, in her regard, in the relationship to uh, dealing with the pain of exile, of being a refugee. Uh, but I was wondering about this, both, both around um, inherited trauma and around time, around this um, moving forward into the past and confronting lineages. And I, I just wondered if you had any more thoughts about that orientation of, of I don't want to use the word backward because of the connotations, but, but turning around, yeah. essentially. I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 it's not what you um, are ever told to do somehow. And I feel like, Maybe that's something, in part, I learned from studying the I Ching because, um, you know, um, the, cult the Chinese culture, which that book comes from, is very oriented towards um, one's parents and towards, like, filial um, duty is very, very important in, in, in Chinese culture and in a lot of immigrant cultures and, and hung Jewish culture and Hungarian culture, which is my, my background. And um, I think it's always... It's always been something that I've observed, the importance of um, taking care of one's parents. And I feel like that's not really very North American. I think that in North America, you are sort of supposed to set out from your family and and, and sort of forge a new independent life for yourself. And, and, and there's um, – and so may, maybe that's partly how that intuition came to me of, of what about turning backwards because I just – 
I'd never related to that North American thing. I could never do that. I mean, part of the reason I live in Toronto still is because my parents are there, and I feel like a duty to be close to them. Um, and and um, and yeah, I, and I, I guess I fundamentally, in my heart, don't think there's there's anything better about making a child and taking care of the child than taking care of one's parents. Um, the parents already exist. No, and I, and what's really interesting is as we get to this turning backwards, a lot of these abstract questions get rooted in this in this sense of a Jewish lineage. Uh, we get the story of the Baal Shem Tov that um, makes you contemplate why women are never considered ends in themselves. But we, we get that earlier, but it feels mm-hmm. like now that it's connected to a, a passing down of a story, I think it's almost like you can hear it differently. And we get a painting of Auschwitz called If Not Not, that becomes a meditation on how to devise a language that could unite mothers and non-mothers without negating either of them. And most notably, probably the um, meditation on Jacob uh, wrestling with the angel, which of course is also your wrestling. And then will there be a transformation from your wrestling? Um, And your mother crying for 40 days and 40 nights like Noah and Moses on Mount Sinai. But also I'm thinking the 40 weeks of gestation and the age 40, which would be a a possible drop in fertility. Um, And then this meditation around your, your cousins in Israel who feel a responsibility to repopulate the Jewish population post Holocaust as a sort of a duty and a a reparation and how um, you see not having children is in a sense, breaking the cycle of violence, not the, not the reverse Um, so at one point you say, can I call my lack of experience of motherhood a motherhood too? And it's here where I feel like you sort of achieve that. It feels like the absence of motherhood arises from a certain care for the world that feels like a mothering. I don't know if that feels like a stretch to you to say that, but it, it does feel like the, the way you turn towards your history and to your living, your living history, uh, feels very um, infused with the, the care of a mother. That's neat. Yeah, I, it's, um, that's very nice. Um, thank you for saying that. And I, I'm reminded of this thing a woman said to me recently in, in an email. Um, I, she was reading my book, and she said um, she, didn't ha- she doesn't have children. She's a woman in her 50s. And she says, why is my decision not to have children also not – why don't people see that as a maternal act, like an act of maternal care? She says, I'm speaking as her now, she says, I I thought it was best for my children not to be born into the world, to, to be in that other place. And that that was a that was a that was an act of maternal power. And I thought that was so beautiful, like uh, uh, to to frame it in that way, you know, rather than, well, I didn't have children, but just to think, well, no, as, as a mother, I'm choosing not to bring them here. And that's, that's the greatest act of care I can make given my circumstances, my life circumstances and the way the world is. Well, one of my obsessions with the show, like, I I think there's, you could link several uh, sort of rabbit holes that I go down on the show, but one of them has to do with storytelling and sort of the environmental crisis. And can we change the way we tell stories in order to uh, find ways to avert the the appen- impending catastrophe. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, so I don't know if this is a stretch, but back when most of the world was wilderness 
and the number of humans on the planet was relatively small. So there's tons of other megafauna and um, tons of places we haven't explored. I, I suspect that some of the stories we had, like be fruitful and multiply, or the taboos around having sex during menstruation so that you're, you're higher um, incidence of pregnancies because you're having sex more when the woman's fertile, or, um, or even the idea that a mother, the principal way to be a woman and be fulfilled as a woman, as a mother. Maybe that served in, as a sort of like story technology around species survival and, and growth. But given that we're, so like in 1800, there were a billion people on the planet and 250 years later, so 20 years from now, there'll be 10 billion. So 1 billion to 10 million in just 250 years and that the population will double in our lifetime that well over 90% of the animals on the planet are humans, their pets, and their livestock. And that even though we've known about the population problem for a really long time, um, and people like Al Gore who say they're environmentalists, I know he cares, his movie doesn't talk about overpopulation or diet, it talks about efficiencies, so can we have a better light bulb or more efficient cars? Um, which feels like there's a sort of almost species denial in even confronting the question. I'm, 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 so I'm super curious about whether we can create stories that interrogate these old stories and whether they can shift consciousness. So when you say in, in motherhood, there's a kind of sadness at not wanting the things that give so many other people their life's meaning, there can be a sadness at not living out a more universal story. Of course, I, I know you're talking about the loss of community and choosing not to be a mother uh, uh, and not having peers that are childless, but also feel like this book is part of this attempt to create new stories for the species so that there isn't just one universal story. Maybe there can be a couple universal or close to universal stories where um, maybe people who were to choose it on the benefit of the planet. So if we're talking about mothering, um, whether someone chooses to be a mother or not, but this question of could we choose not to be a mother and not be lonely? Could there be like a literature of the people who've chosen to not be mothers or to have fewer kids as a sort of mothering of the planet? I don't know if I've just totally derailed, but I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts, which are not prominent in the book. They get touched on a little bit around this and that sort of larger uh, frame. Yeah. I mean, so, like clearly the best thing you can do for the planet is not to have kids. Like, I don't think there's anything you can do that's better. You can recycle for your whole entire life, but if you have a kid, I mean, you're, you know, that, that put that all, you know, that, that makes that so tiny compared to what you're bringing in, not to, just that kid, but that kid's kids and, you know, just the exponential, you know, as, as you were talking about the exponential growth of like the human population. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I had a joke with a friend where I was like, um, sort of this half joke, like, if this book present, prevents even one person from being born, I will have done my job. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just, um, I do think that we have to talk more about the beauty and the fullness of life without without children, um, not just not just for those who who just for for the yeah like you say for everyone's sake i mean um we don't all need to have children and there are so many children and and there's the work of of parenting is so terribly um confined to the parents and that that is also ridiculous and that is that doesn't seem natural and anyone who's a parent will tell you it, it's it's too much of a burden all that work and 
you don't need to be with a you don't need to have a child from your own body and there's just so many things we have to get over like you said that that were like like you said myths from a time where humans needed that in order to survive and we need the opposite kinds of stories now i mean um uh, there was going to be this part in the book and i took it out because it didn't really fit but like there was going to be this part in the book where the the character's friend has a has a child and 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 she sort of becomes this second mother to the child and and um that's great for the kid and that's great for her and that's great for the mother like not every there there can be many mothers to a single child um and that didn't really fit but i i think that's true i mean we just have to find other ways of doing it and that are that are more resourceful and that help each other and that help the mothers i mean that's just too much there's just too much work and it it shouldn't and it's too expensive and it's just all such a mess and yeah i completely agree with you one of the things that you say that sort of fits into this conversation also is that you kind of wrote motherhood as a form or your narrator as a form of prophylaxis against having a kid that if you could spend enough time uh here we go back to this theme of time if you could spend enough time writing the book time would run out and you could be at this other place the book could be birthed but no baby would be birthed in the process of of birthing the book do you feel like now that the book is out in the world that um there's a different relationship to the ambivalence. Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting. I I had a friend sort of say to me, like, the book, you you know, your struggle that created the book, it's not going to be complete until the book is in the world and people start responding to it. And I have found that on this tour that so many women and men, too, come up to me and just say, like, almost like it's this secret, like, you know, this one woman said to me, like, I had my tubes tied when I was 26. And another woman says to me, like, I just decided last week that I don't want to have children. And and it's giving me so much to hear these stories and to feel like I'm not alone and to feel like it's not weird. And the more that, you know, I mean, part of the reason I want books is because I want to write books is to so I can live in the world I want to live in. It's so, you know, to change the world, to make it a more... Um, to make it a more hospitable place for the kind of person I am. So if if this book is coming out and 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 the world around me at least is changing and and it it feels more natural, normal, good, healthy, etc. to not have a child, then I've that I can be in a new world, not the world that I felt like I would be in before I wrote this book where as a child childless woman I would feel alienated and somehow other. Um, already I feel like this 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 world that I'm inhabiting now is not the world that I was inhabiting five years ago, and and that's because of the people that are that are talking to me who have read the book, and I just I I I want that other world, you know. Yeah, I want that other world too. Yeah, I hope a lot of people read this book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great having you back on the show, Sheila. Yeah, it's so great being here. So we're talking today to Sheila Hetty about her latest book, Motherhood. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Sheila Hetty's work can be found at sheilahetty.com, as well as at patreon.com slash between the covers, where she reads her piece, My Life is a Joke. My Life is a Joke 
joins the growing archive, including Carmen Maria Machado reading an essay about Trump, John Keane reading some poems, Lainey Zumas on Betsy DeVos, Jen Bourbon on Paul Salon, and Azarine Vanderfleet Alumi on Reading the Odyssey Away from Home. That and much more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sa Petite Ami, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>